Anzac Day has come to symbolise the heroism of Australian and New Zealander soldiers who have fought in all wars. But what does the day really stand for? Does waking up in the early hours of Sunday morning mean supporting Australia's war efforts? What about the recent allegations of war crimes by Australian Special Forces? What does Anzac Day mean, really? Welcome to Signs of the Times Radio. Well, it's great to have you with us for Signs of the Times Radio for another week. And this week, I have a special guest with me, and that is Professor Daniel Renault out of Avondale University College. How are you doing, Daniel? I'm doing very well, thank you. Now, it's great to have you join us. We've had you join us in the past as well, talking about faith and soldiers during the war and certain other topics, because you have a, a history background, is that correct? That is right, yes. I'm a historian. And you've written numerous books as well, right? I have published a few books on Anzac themes, yes. Which is perfect because that literally coincides with a date that we have coming up, which is Anzac Day. Now, Anzac Day is a public holiday, but this year and last year it fell on a Sunday, which means it's not really a public holiday in the sense that you won't probably get time off work unless you work in retail or something. So I guess a lot of people are feeling a bit bummed about that. But there may be people out there who don't really know the difference between two momentous holidays that we celebrate in Australia to do with the war. And the other one is Armistice Day in November. Now, for those who don't really know what the difference is, can you just sort of highlight what is the difference between Anzac Day and Armistice Day and why is it that we celebrate Anzac Day as a public holiday and not the other one? Right. Well, Armistice Day remembers the day on which the war ended, the First World War, which was the 11th of November, 1918. And it is celebrated around the world in many countries that have participated in World War I. So it's kind of an international day of remembrance. Traditionally, you stop at 11am, which is the the hour the war stopped, and have two-minute silence, a short speech, that kind of thing. On the other hand, Anzac Day is celebrated in Australia and New Zealand, and it remembers the day on which Australian and New Zealand troops first took part on a large scale in the First World War, which was 25th of April 1915, when they landed on the Gallipoli Peninsula in Turkey. So it's a holiday unique to Australia and New Zealand. And in New Zealand, well, it's something you mentioned in your article that in Australia we take Anzac Day quite seriously, and as they do in New Zealand, but it doesn't seem to be as significant for them as it is over here. Is that a correct statement? Probably the New Zealanders haven't made as much of Anzac Day as Australians have. In Australia, Anzac Day has evolved to be probably our most important national holiday Whereas in New Zealand, while Anzac Day is incredibly significant, it hasn't quite achieved the same status as a defining national symbol that it has in Australia. So, for example, Waitangi Day in New Zealand, while it has its controversies, is still a much bigger event than the equivalent in Australia of Australia Day. That's interesting. Yeah, because another point that you raise in your article is that Generally, some of our public holidays in Australia have become quite controversial recently. And, you know, we talk about Australia Day and the controversy of that being Invasion Day. Now, the interesting thing is that you look at Anzac Day in the controversy it has, you know, 
brought in public discussion, and that has been around for quite a while. Now, recently, because of, you know, 2015 being the 100 years of Gallipoli, the national sentiment has been more positive towards Anzac Day, but there has been times in Australia's history where Anzac Day was a divisive thing. Can you just sort of give us a bit of a sketch about why that is? Sure. And Until the 1980s, actually, Anzac Day was controversial. It was first celebrated in 1916 in both New Zealand and Australia. It was often prominent clergymen who led the way, who organised the events. Part of the problem in the early celebrations of Anzac Day was people saw it as having a spiritual significance, but because of the bitter rivalry between different churches, they couldn't really give it a kind of a church spin. For example, at the time, Roman Catholics were forbidden from attending services, non-Catholic services. So if you held an Anzac Day service with a strong Anglican feel, it would exclude the Catholic Anzacs, etc., etc. So it began controversially. And in the interwar years, particularly in Australia, less so in New Zealand, the legacy of Anzac was quite busy. That is to say, A lot of soldiers came back from the First World War with their feelings towards Britain and empire confirmed. They were happy to be British Australians, which was the popular identity at the time. On the other hand, a lot of them came back quite annoyed with Britain and determined to transform Australia into a radical Republican working class sort of a country. And these groups were in open conflict between the wars, sometimes, you know, getting involved in street battles and punching each other up with pick handles and assaulting each other's printing presses because they would distribute their material by in pamphlets and booklets. And and the governments, the, the federal government and the state governments, tended to back the conservatives. And so the more radical Anzac legacy effectively got beaten and shut out of the public conversation. And what we've got left is the, the conservative version of Anzac. Now, there were also a lot of soldiers who were on neither side. They just simply wanted to forget. And it's possibly the majority of returned servicemen would not attend Anzac Day services. They just, it it was too traumatic for them. So we've got that history up until World War II. Then in the Second World War, Australia's involvement was downplayed, particularly by the American General MacArthur, who didn't want any competition for, you know, press coverage about him. So while we had two early notable battles, namely the Siege of Tobruk and the Kokoda Trail, they're over by 1942, which means the last two and a bit years of the war, Australians did nothing kind of legendary or famous. And so the Anzac legend was overshadowed by British and American war stories in the 50s and the 60s. And then, of course, we've got the Vietnam War, which was quite an unpopular war, very divisive, not only in America, but also in Australia and New Zealand. And there were times in the 60s and early 70s where people thought Anzac Day would disappear because it was just a glorification of militarism. Mm. So, you know, today's attitude towards Anzac, which began in the 80s, is, you know, relatively recent. It's only our last 40 years where Anzac has been this universal, unifying day where all Australians and all Kiwis come together. So what you're saying is essentially that Anzac Day started out as celebrating or sort of remembering Gallipoli, 
but it has since expanded to include all wars or all servicemen that served in at, all wars. Yes, servicemen and women in all wars and, and in fact, who've served at all because with today's RSL clubs, the, their membership uh, was in decline with the passing of the generations from World War One, World War Two, And so they've opened it up to all servicemen and women, you know, regardless of wherever they've served. Okay, that's interesting. And it's really interesting what you mentioned about the Vietnam War because I've, I've done quite a bit of research into the Vietnam War myself. In fact, I met with a veteran once and he told me about how when he came back from the Vietnam War and landed in Sydney, the Australian public were throwing tomatoes at the servicemen because the war was so unpopular. You know, that was the sort of the, the rise of media. So people, you know, journalists were given unprecedented access to record things that the public didn't or weren't ready to see. And as a result, it sounds like Anzac Day was unpopular in those moments. Is that correct? Yes. You know, not universally unpopular, but certainly there was a widespread feeling that we didn't want to celebrate a day, you know, that that marked our military adventures overseas. The, The Vietnam War tainted the Anzac legacy. Yeah. And that's very interesting because whilst that was, you know, many decades ago, we're coming up to... Anzac Day now, where we were recently, as a country, confronted with things that our special forces took part in. Namely, there was a report in November last year where I think around 19 current or former soldiers are up for prosecution over 39 counts of war crimes against civilians and prisoners. Can you just tell us a little bit about that situation and that report that happened last year? Okay, so these are war crimes that are alleged to have occurred in Afghanistan. They're currently, I believe, being prosecuted and we will wait to see what the court has to say about this. But the thing is, all wars throughout history have tended to produce crimes against civilians and and even against prisoners. The surprising thing isn't that Australians have been involved in war atrocities. It's just that we've managed to conceal this information from ourselves. It was information we didn't want to know. And so, you know, historically, we focused on German war crimes or, uh, you know, anybody else but me kind of attitudes. But if we are, to be honest, we do need to recognise that some Australians in the wars that we've been involved in have committed war crimes. Mm. All armies do it. Yeah. And it's interesting, like, just another point that you also made in your article was the early Anzac. Actually, there was systemic racist issues there. Can you just talk about that as well? Yes. Well, it wasn't a specifically Anzac thing. It was a, it was a very conscious Australian thing. Australia in the late 1800s was was terrified of non-white immigration, particularly from Asia. And that was one of the driving forces for federation, you know, to be able to guard our borders uniformly. And so the early federal government put together a package of laws that we know as the White Australia policy. And it was a stated aim to prevent coloured people from coming to Australia. And Prime Minister at the time, Billy Hughes, was quite overt about saying that this war was fought to keep Australia white. And very, very few Australians would have disagreed with that at the time. Australia, it was the one policy pretty well every shade of politics agreed on, that Australia should be kept white. And so, you know, it's not surprising that the Anzacs 
saw themselves as fighting on Britain's side to make sure that Australia would stay very British and very white. Mm. So it's interesting looking at these sort of issues, but that begs the question, why do we celebrate Anzacs? Are we celebrating the war crimes? Are we celebrating the good and the bad? You know, we all accept that because of their sacrifice that we are able to live in a free country. But does that mean that we also condone horrific acts of violence like has come to light recently? Like, how do you draw the line with Anzac Day and what what exactly it is that we're celebrating? Sure. Look, it's a complex question and there aren't easy answers. Uh, The first thing we need to recognise is that the meaning of Anzac Day has evolved over time. Anzac is the story that we tell ourselves as part of what we call a national mythology. Now, mythology doesn't necessarily mean it's a load of rubbish. Myths are stories that preserve big picture values and attitudes that we consider important. And every country needs a a mythology and an ideal held in front of them to aspire to. And I guess we as Australians in particular, to some extent as Kiwis too, but Australians have invested the Anzac narrative with all the ideal qualities of the Australian. And in the process, We've edited out the inconvenient bits, Mm. such as war crimes and and the racism, etc. In the first 40, 50 years of Anzac memorialisation, our British connection was very strong. But from the 80s onwards, Anzac was marked by a bashing of the British as Australia sought a separate identity. So it is normal for national narratives to evolve along with changing values and attitudes in society. So that's not unusual and it's not bad. I think countries should have an ideal Mm. and Anzac is a convenient one. Perhaps what we need to do in memorialising Anzac is to remember that when we create a national myth that embodies our idealised values, we should remember that there's a gap between that and what actually happened. So, for example, in the real Anzac narrative of World War I, World War II, Korea, all the other wars we've been involved in, there were soldiers who were incredibly noble and self-sacrificing and decent. And there were some who were, to be frank, downright crooks who behaved badly, who were irresponsible. You know, it's the good, the bad and the ugly all mixed up. And we can make a mistake in assuming that the idealisation of Anzac, which we do on Anzac Day, equals the actual history. They are two separate things. And I I think there is a call for us to recognise both the very best in Australian values, which comes out through Anzac Day, but not let that obscure the fact that we as Australians, we as Kiwis, are capable of behaving badly at times. You know, we, we, we need that kind of memory so that we don't gloss over our mistakes and then repeat them. That's really interesting about looking at idealistically. I was actually talking with a Jewish friend of mine recently because I have a Polish background. And I was talking with him about the general stereotype that the Polish people weren't helpful towards the Jews during World War Two, And he told me, like, while there were many counts of anti-Semitism, there was still, in the road of the righteous in Israel, there are more Polish people there than any other nationality because, you know, as many Poles that were not helpful in that situation, there were also many people who stepped up and helped the Jews out. Now, it's interesting what you're suggesting to sort of, when we look at Australia's war history, not to just remember, you know, the sacrifices that were made, but also to remember the atrocities that happened. Yes, 
not as something to be put in our national ideal, but as a reminder that even we who think well of ourselves are capable of atrocity if we're not forever vigilant about what it truly means to be Australian. It was interesting for my fiance because she is from Poland and in Poland, when they remember the war, it's a very different celebration to Australia. She says that you don't see people out on the street. The mood is generally somber and people just are meek rather than sort of celebrating. Whereas in Australia, we see it, like you said, that the ideal of Australian culture that these lives were sacrificed on our behalf. That stems in part from early Australian history. You see, when we were founded as a European settlement, as a British settlement, the majority of the early settlers were convicts, people with a criminal background. And the feeling was at the time that criminality was hereditary. And people were worried that the British race in Australia had degenerated. And others said, no, no, it's got better. And they all saw a war as a way of testing the national character. Had the British race got better or got worse? And so when the first reports came through, triumphant British reports of of Australian heroism and success at Gallipoli, Australians were relieved, unbelievably relieved, because it proved that the British race hadn't gone backwards. And so they saw the war as a genuine test of uh, true British Australianness. And that's where the significance of Anzac Day came in. You know, it was crucial that we felt good about ourselves and the successful landing made us feel good about ourselves. I mean, ultimately, the campaign was a failure. But ever since then, we've remembered Anzac Day as central to us having faith in ourselves. Of course, for Poland, the war was quite a different event, the same as in France. The Second World War is filled with shame and anguish, with defeat and a lost face. Whereas for Australia, Anzac Day represents the establishment of our identity on the international stage. That's a very interesting point. Now, with Anzac Day coming up, obviously, there may be people out there who have issues with the very concept of celebrating war, people who probably believe in a, in a sort of a de-escalated approach. Now, is there a value in celebrating Anzac Day, even if you don't believe in what it represents as far as the, the very act of war? Yes, I think there is. And by the way, war is always evil, but sometimes there is a greater evil. For example, I think most people would agree that fighting Hitler or fighting Japanese aggression was a good thing. Not that war itself is a good thing, but that the war in itself was less terrible than not addressing this greater evil. So we can't automatically dismiss war as always wrong. There are times where it is necessary to prevent something greater. And, you know, that's a grey line. Where does that occur? You know, we tried to justify the war in Afghanistan on the basis of weapons of mass destruction, which we later found out didn't exist. But all wars are fought with some sort of moral justification. How do we celebrate Anzac Day? We, we do need to remember that these, these men and women fought in good faith for values that they held at the time values that have helped make Australia. And while we may not endorse everything they have done, we do need to recognise that they, they were making a principled stand. They were prepared to lose their lives for the benefit of the whole of Australia. And that in itself has a nobility. I don't think we ought to overlook the nobility of individual sacrifice simply because 
a larger cause may be tainted in some way. So a lot of Australians see themselves as celebrating Anzac Day not as a celebration of war, but in remembrance of what people voluntarily were prepared to go through in order to ensure a better future for the rest of us. Yeah, that's right. Those those moments in history that you mentioned, like the Vietnam War, those moments where it was the most murky because the, the public and even the soldiers themselves didn't really understand what it is that we're fighting for what the connection was to what was happening back home, they still went ahead and did it anyway. Yes, and the idea of them being spat on and assaulted when they came back, that's really offensive. You know, feelings were running very high, but we need to make those kind of decisions at the ballot box, not on the poor soldiers returning home, traumatised by war and then, you know, assaulted by their very own. You know, we see a lot of tension in the world today as a Christian you know, I've we read a Bible that sort of says that wars and rumors of wars might be a, a thing that might happen again in the future. Now, as we deal with these sorts of things, like on a political level between countries, you know, obviously you mentioned the moments when war needs to happen because, you know, a country needs to defend itself. But there's also a diplomatic approach, isn't there? Is there an ideal for that sort of diplomatic approach that can happen, that can prevent wars from happening in the future? Look, I don't have a great deal of hope for preventing wars in the future, not on a global scale. But I think as individuals, we can take responsibility for how we live and the kind of leverage that we exercise in the political world, you know, that is through our votes and through approaching our politicians. One of the interesting things I, I came across and I thought it made a lot of sense of the whole idea of conflict. The French philosopher René Girard, he talks about religion, particularly Christianity. Christianity stands out in this respect. Most of us look for a scapegoat to bash up when something goes wrong. I mean, Hitler's a classic one. It was the fault of the Jews and the communists and, and the Slavs. Mm. Let's take it out on them and then the world will be a better place. So we pick an outsider to blame, an outside individual or force, and we really get stuck into them big time. And and that way, you know, we can kill somebody else as a kind of a atoning for the sins of our group. But Christianity's taken a very different approach. You know, the model that Christianity puts forward is that God took on himself the punishment that humanity had earned. So God, who could have rightfully punished humans, instead, through Jesus, took all that punishment on himself at the cross in order to offer humans his perfect place. And that's an incredible diffuser of hostility. You know, it is unjust in the sense that it's the good guy who copped the punishment. But he didn't cop it because somebody else dumped it on him. He chose to take it as a pathway to peace. And I think that's a model for us in our lives. We might not be able to bring about world peace, but if we're prepared to absorb some of the evil around us without retaliation, by giving grace when we're offered violence, you know, at, at whatever level, not an easy thing to do, but it's a, it's a matter of great courage. My own father, who lived through World War II in Vietnam when it was a French colony and then fought the Vietnamese in the war immediately afterwards, was a great fan of the Mahatma Gandhi's philosophy of nonviolence. In fact, in the middle of a civil war, when he was being shot at on a weekly basis, he gave away all his weapons, prepared to die to demonstrate to the Vietnamese that he had no hostility towards them. Mm. And his theory was that if we didn't fight back, 
there would ultimately be a victory for justice, that evil is brought undone when it is confronted with grace and goodness and kindness. Now, it's not a cheap option. It's not an easy option. It, it is the most costly option, mm. but I believe that it is ultimately the most effective one. Yeah. And there's like some interesting examples in history of people as well who were in wars. Like, for example, Desmond Doss, a very famous example of a man who, who held to Christian ideals and refused to bear arms as a result. And, you know, even though he was, you know, belittled by his peers, he ended up saving many lives as a result. Like, there, there are those stories in history too, aren't there? Yes, and we can see some of them on the international scale. I think the example of World War One and World War Two are very instructive, you know. Sometimes we have to fight a war to stop a war, but we... You can't make peace through a war. You can't hit somebody into agreement with you. Mm. They might submit to you, but they'll be resentful. So at the end of the First World War, the French premier in particular, the French president, the Poincaré, was absolutely determined to gain revenge on the Germans. After all, it was the second time in 40 years that Germany had invaded France. And so he insisted on a very retributive peace treaty, the Treaty of Versailles, and this aroused tremendous resentment in Germany and, in fact, directly fueled the rise of Adolf Hitler. So, ironically, the, the peace treaty was one of the major causes of World War II. Mm. And Hitler was able to gain leverage over the German people by appealing to this sense of injustice. And there was an injustice in the, in the Versailles Peace Treaty. But at the end of the Second World War, the Americans seem to have learnt something and led by their Secretary of State, they instituted a plan to revive the economies of two of the countries they'd flattened, namely Germany and Japan. Now, of course, they were doing this to make sure that they were American allies instead of flipping over to the communist Russian side. Mm. But nevertheless, you can hardly think of two more stout and reliable American allies than Germany and Japan, which were rebuilt with American money at the end of the war. And it shows that once we've won a war, we then need to invest a lot into winning the peace. Let's extend every help and every grace we can to those we have defeated to to restore their way of life and, and ensure that they have a safe and peaceable society in which to live. Well, I mean, that's a, an incredible approach, one that is, you know, un understands the complexities and seeks to help rather than just vindication. And indeed, some of the things that you mentioned about understanding the complexity of Anzac Day is absolutely fundamental because it is only through understanding our mistakes that we can look to rectify those rather than to sort of hope or wish that they didn't happen to understand that but still to look forward to sort of a brighter future and also still not to dismiss all the the heroic sacrifices that were made because of the few who you know committed evil acts so i really appreciate that you've you've shared some of those stories well i i think it's relevant to Australian society in the immediate. I mean, there's, let me mention just a couple of sources of friction in Australian society today. That is anti-Muslim sentiment and anti-Asian sentiment. The Muslim sentiment because of a reaction to, you know, violent jihadist Muslim behaviour, which is perpetrated by a, a, a tiny minority of Muslims. And, and the second anti-Asian sentiment accentuated through the COVID crisis. Do we really create a better Australia by picking on Australians of Muslim faith or of Asian origin? Or do we simply perpetrate the suspicion and the fear and the hatred when we behave that way, you know? 
And that's not to say if all Australians treated the rest of Australians nicely that everything would be sweetness and light because evil walks this country too, regardless of race or ideology. You know, we have, you know, we're flawed human beings and, and we do the wrong thing. But hitting back when we've been wronged is to guarantee that the violence continues. And we need to reach out to the hurt communities in Australia and offer a peaceful hand, a helpful hand, one that seeks to heal and, and to restore rather than to beat up. And those are some incredible practical steps that you're talking about. Rather than just, our oh, war is, you know, above and beyond us, it's at a global political level. You know, we have a influence on culture and those steps that you mentioned of, you know, seeking to heal division in our own backyards, on our streets and with our neighbours, those are some practical steps that we can take that can, you know, seek to heal rather than to, you know, spark division. So those are some great steps that you mentioned there. Well, thank you so much, Daniel, for joining me this week. It's certainly very insightful for myself and hopefully for our audience too. And hopefully we'll have you join us again sometime in the near future. I look forward to that. Today's episode was based on an article appearing in this month's Signs of the Times magazine. A subscription is just $26 for 11 issues a year. To find out more, visit signsofthetimes.org.au in Australia or signsofthetimes.org.nz in New Zealand. This is an Adventist media podcast.